In the name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. In my younger days, back when I was trying to gain weight for sports and could eat with reckless abandon, those were the days, I was a big fan of the buffet. Now, COVID took most of the fun out of buffets for a while, as does heart disease and diabetes. But maybe you can recall your own fun buffet experiences. The fun of a buffet is that you don't have to really commit to a certain food. You can indecisively graze among the endless options, spooning in as much of the variety as you like until you arrive at your favorite dish, which you barely get to enjoy because you're too full from eating all the other stuff. There are options for everyone on a buffet, trying to make everyone happy no one choice, good or bad, right or wrong. Just find whatever works for you. Our first world luxurious approach to food at buffets is the common approach to religion. In our first world luxurious, self-focused, find what works for you culture. No religion is right or wrong, most say. So you just find a religion if any at all, or some philosophy for life that works for you, that inspires you or motivates you, something that gives you warm fuzzies and some sense of peace. You shouldn't claim that your preferred religion is the only way though, since after all, we all like different food on the buffet. Since we can't prove anything spiritual is right anyway, you just have to discover your bowl on the buffet and then spoon in as much as you want. Religion understood in such a way is mythology. Stories that influence culture but aren't true. If you ask the average person at Starbucks, they likely tell you that all religions are just elaborate mythical systems trying to influence, control, or pacify people. Ironically, as I was writing this very sermon at Starbucks, the lady next to me, I pretended to listen to my music and I was listening to her talk to her friend about after their yoga, their instructor, tells them about all these different gods in the ancient Greek and Roman systems, uh, all, all female goddesses and the goddesses of, of what they were focused on. And, they, and she was encouraging them to try to appeal to one of the goddesses that would maybe influence their life and they'd find peace in some way by, by appealing to one of those goddesses. It's bizarre. Be careful what you talk about at Starbucks. I'm always listening. In the early days of Christianity, as Paul was preaching the gospel in the city of Ephesus, he encountered such an influence of mythology. The goddess that was embraced in Ephesus was a goddess named Artemis, the goddess of the hunt. And everyone in that city was to have a silver idol 
to Artemis in their home. And that's one way that you show your allegiance to her. And by showing your allegiance, she would bless you with success in whatever you endeavored, or at least that was the hope. Now, obviously, this system of having to have a silver idol in your home was great for stimulating the economy, especially for the silversmiths. It was a great myth that helped the culture to thrive. If things went well for an Ephesian, he assumed that Artemis was blessing him. And when things went poorly, or his kids got sick, or his business was struggling, he went out and bought more silver idols and worshiped at the Artemis temple. And then, hopefully, Artemis would be pleased enough to bless him. But Artemis never entered into this world. She never walked into Ephesus. She, therefore, was never falsifiable. That is, no one could prove that she existed in this world or not, since no one claimed that she ever did anyway. It was just a myth that people could choose to follow or not, hoping that it would bless them. But it wasn't based in a real historical Artemis person. In today's epistle lesson, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The teaching of Christianity is not some cleverly devised myth, some cultural creation embraced because it works sometimes for some people. It's not a story about a fairy tale God who stays up distant in the heavens, leaving us to wonder how he feels about us. The Christian faith is not a system of ideas trying to control people. It's not even trying to motivate or inspire people. It's not a way to bring material blessing to your life or success to your career. It's not a myth at all. The Christian faith is simply the confession of a person. God did not stay unfalsifiable up in the heavens, but he came down and made himself known to this fallen and broken world, for which he died and rose again. And so when Paul showed up in Ephesus confessing Jesus, and not Artemis, who was chased out of town by the silversmiths. Jesus is fine, they'd say, but not here in Ephesus, Paul. We prefer Artemis as our goddess. But it's not a question of preference. It's a question of truth. You can't have it both ways. It's not a buffet. It's a one-item menu. All the rest is poison. Now, regardless of what brought you here today, the Lord has called you here. And so you have to deal with this reality that Jesus Christ is a real person. He is God who came into this world, died, and rose for sinners. 
His teaching and miracles were witnessed, and those witnesses were willing to die with the conviction that they would live again because they saw Jesus die and live again. As Peter said in the reading, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, Peter could have been making it up or just trying to make a few bucks by selling silver idols, but he actually sold nothing. He made no money, but he was crucified upside down because he saw Jesus die and rise, and he wanted to make sure that you knew that it was true. It's not a preference. It's a historical fact, and it was for you. His dying and rising, all to save sinners who can't save themselves. Now today we celebrate the transfiguration of Jesus as Jesus revealed his glory on the mountain to Peter, James, and John. His face shined brightly, his clothes were bright white, heaven opened, and he was speaking with Moses and Elijah. And a thundering voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Understandably, Peter wanted to stay in that glorious mountaintop moment, in the presence of heaven, away from the daily struggles, and most importantly, if he could stay on top of that mountain with Jesus, maybe Jesus could avoid the suffering and death that Jesus himself had foretold that was coming. And so Peter said, it's good, Lord, to be here. Let's make a few tents and stick around for a while. But Jesus doesn't stay up on the mountain because your life is not lived up on that mountain. Our life is down in the valleys, in the daily challenges, the monotony of everyday life, the suffering of this world, the valley of the shadow of death, where there are, sadly, school shootings, cancer, divorce, and war, where jobs are lost, kids are abandoned, abused, and aborted, and evil abounds. That's where we live. So that's where Jesus chooses to be. He can't save us by staying away from us. He comes off the mountain, Matthew 17. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus only. Not the bright, shining, transfigured glory, but only Jesus the one who had all the power of heaven and earth, but hid it behind weakness. In weakness and humility, he came to Peter and said, fear not. And he headed down the mountain toward the cross. Fear not, he says to you, for we live down the mountain. Our Jesus doesn't avoid suffering, but works through 
the greatest suffering to bring about the greatest good for us. He loves you, not because things are going well for you. That's the way of Artemis and other cleverly devised myths. But it's not the way of Jesus. We don't look at our lives for evidence of his love, but we look to the fact of the cross. God's love for you is sure, not because things are going well in your life, but because Jesus died. Whether in suffering or success, he loves you and is with you. By the cross, he overcame sin and death. He covered your shame and cleansed your guilt. And he is with you, not as a myth or a preference on the buffet, but the true historical Jesus, the one who died and rose. He ascended and makes himself present for you in his word and his supper as he gives his holy body and blood into our bodies of sin. He has baptized his presence onto you and is with you in your times of suffering, working it toward good, strengthening your faith in him and turning you from your idols back to himself. In the name of Jesus, amen. We stand for prayer.